Hi everyone, I'm Sewan. I'm Akash, and this is Now What? We're two Harvard College students trying to make sense of this post-corona reality. As we students deal with the unfortunate reality of attending online classes, losing internships and job offers, and social distancing, our future looks increasingly uncertain. Our hope is that each episode on the podcast features experts from a variety of fields who offer clarity, breaking down the current events shaping our world, and sharing advice uniquely tailored to our generation. Today we're joined by Steven Pinker, Harvard professor, experimental cognitive psychologist, and a popular writer on language, mind, and human nature. Thank you so much for joining us today, Professor. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. We're so happy to have you here today with us. Now, for people who haven't read your book, Enlightenment Now describes how the values of the Enlightenment, science, reason, humanism, and progress keep improving our world until today, making it a better place day by day, despite all the negative news we see. So a natural question I have for you, Professor, is, have you changed your mind? Do the arguments still stand today in light of COVID-19, questionable government policies and approaches to coronavirus, race tensions in the U.S. and beyond? Well, it's, um, it's an opportunity to clarify what progress uh, consists of, because um, the, the, the fact that the world has made progress, that extreme poverty has uh, radically declined from 90% of the world's population to 10%, the fact that literacy has increased from about 15% uh, of the world's population to 90% uh, of, of uh, young people. The fact that wars have been in decline from about 25 uh, war deaths per 100,000 per year to less than one. Um, in measure after measure, the, the world has become better in a way that you can't appreciate from headlines because uh, journalism is a report, a non-random sample of the worst things that have happened to the world in the last few hours. Uh, the things that go right, a city that is not at war, a uh, country that's not experiencing a famine, I mean, that's not news. Uh, likewise, gradual improvements, such as 137,000 people escaping from extreme poverty uh, every day, uh, can accumulate to change the the human condition, but there's never a Thursday in October in which you uh, will find it as a headline. So our uh, so progress takes place in a way that is difficult to experience, but um, what it does not mean is that there is some magical force that makes everything better uh, all the time and that we should just be uh, automatically optimistic because stuff gets better. It doesn't, stuff gets worse. Uh, the, only, the reason that there has been progress is uh, when people put their heads together and try to solve problems, problems are inevitable, uh, every now and again they succeed. And if we uh, hang on to the successes, if we discard the failed experiments, then gradually over time these successes can accumulate and things can get better. But it doesn't mean that problems stop and, and uh, they, the pandemic is a prime example. Uh, Disease, pestilence, infection are part, part of life, part of what it means to be a big complex organism. Uh, another way of putting it is that we are a big, huge, yummy mound of, of chocolate cake from a germ's point of view. And uh, germs are always uh, evolving to try to uh, eat us from the inside. We traditionally have fought back with uh, our immune system, with sexual reproduction, which makes our, our uh, kids biologically different from us. Uh, with <clears throat> our emotion of, uh, uh, of disgust, a way of avoiding disease vectors. But um, we uh, brainy humans also have one more weapon against uh, 
pathogens, namely our intelligence, our cognitive processes, especially when refined by the institutions of science, which uh, allow us to be collectively smarter than any of us is individually. And uh, we, uh, it, it's pretty clear how we're, we're, uh, our species is doing its best against this new, new threat with a combination of uh, search for vaccines, for antiviral treatments, for public health measures like uh, distancing and, and uh, sanitation, and contact tracing. Uh, it's, it's very likely that we will tame this within uh, a year, year and a half with far fewer casualties than uh, the AIDS epidemic or the uh, Spanish flu, uh, to say nothing of, of smallpox and the, and the Black Death. Um, so the, uh, the, the way that the, the um, current rather horrific events of the, the past year fit in is that it's yet another um, threat. It's, there's no guarantee that we will solve it, but um, there's, there's a reason to believe we have an, an excellent chance. Uh, likewise, the, uh, the current racial tension in the United States uh, there again, it's one, one can't um, see the entire unfolding of events as an example of progress. There have been uh, the riots, there have been uh, an increase in uh, uh, homicides. Um, uh, at the end of the day, there almost certainly will be police reforms, fewer innocent people killed by police. Uh, that would be uh, one spot of progress against the backdrop of a lot of uh, non-progress. And, and that's the way progress works. It's not a, it's not a magic carpet. Um, just kind of going back a little bit to what you mentioned, where we have this tendency perhaps to overemphasize um, a lot of the shortcomings or a lot of the failures and potentially gloss over a lot of the successes. Uh, that, that kind of brings to mind this article that Nicholas Kristof had released towards the end of 2019 that effectively encapsulated all of the successes that were over the year of 2019. And I remember feeling quite shocked about that just to read everything that was good about the year because you're always drowned with all this sort of negativity from the media as opposed to, I mean, when it comes to, um, you know, a lot of the failures, a lot of the sort of uh, dramatic challenges that the world's facing. And so my question though is more so around the role of the media there and how it could potentially be reformed. Um, I think there is something about human nature where we gravitate towards a lot of the heart shattering sort of negative dramatic headlines and a lot of these successes, like a lot of um, a lot of the potential headlines that glorify sort of how far we've come, those might not catch as many eyes. Um, at least that's perhaps maybe one um, sort of perspective from the media as to why there's so much negativity and sort of you know that whole emphasis on negative news. So, how do you think the media can go ahead and sort of um, you know like do you think that there is a responsibility of the media to cover a lot of the, a lot of the successes as well and to, you know, at least in some capacity show how far we've come? Uh, unquestionably. Uh, and, and I don't mean this to be a, uh, uh, yet another diatribe against the mainstream media because we've learned that uh, the non-mainstream media like uh, 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 Twitter and Facebook are, are even worse than YouTube. <laughs> uh, the media do have the uh, essential safeguards of fact-checking, of editing, of a reputation to uphold. But there are a couple of built-in biases. One of them is just the market force that people uh, are, um, are often captivated by disaster. Uh, we, you know, we, we watch crime thrillers and mafia movies and uh, war picks and uh, violence is, uh, is engaging. And uh, so the, 
uh, an emphasis on the, the gory, the negative, the lurid is, uh, has to be part of the business model of, uh, of many media. Uh, you had mentioned part of human nature of being uh, captivated by the negative, and there really, there truly is a negativity bias that, uh, namely, that uh, negative emotions are more powerful and attention-getting than, uh, than positive emotions. Uh, we tend to uh, remember recent negative events better than recent positive events. Uh, interestingly, we tend to forget uh, how negative uh, negative events in the distant past were. It's not that we forget them, but we forget how bad they were to live through at the time. So we're kind of hardwired for nostalgia. We, we uh, uh, think of, as one person equipped, the, the best explanation for the good old days is a bad memory. And we do have that bad memory. But there's, there's an additional factor, which is a little less uh, uh, nefarious, if you will. It's not just a, a chase for eyeballs and clicks, but also just the very nature of news. Because it is event-driven, uh, and it's easy for bad things to happen all at once. Um, whereas good things tend to build, either build up over time, so uh, there's never a particular moment at which they uh, are, are sprung in the world, uh, or they consist of nothing happening. Uh, if a country uh, is boring, if there are no riots, if there are no wars, if there's no crime wave, if there's no epidemic, uh, it's out of the news. And so we, we don't hear about the growing number of places in the world that are, uh, that, that are where, where good things happen. So I do think that, the, uh, that mindful of the role that the news media play in shaping our awareness of the world, there should be uh, more statistical literacy, more, um, more reporting on uh, positive developments, on uh, trends rather than uh, events putting events in st into statistical context so that if people read about a, a terrorist attack or a rampage shooting, they don't think that this is the, a, a, a common or typical cause of violence. Rampage shootings are a tiny, tiny fraction of the number of homicides in the country, but the, uh, the, the, the road rage uh, killings, the barroom brawls, the jealous uh, husbands, um, those are kind of on the police blotter and uh, are, are considered too boring for news, but they're what makes up the bulk of, uh, of the nation's violence. Uh, so I think the coverage should be better keyed to the uh, statistics. That uh, they maybe even, uh, ironically, there are parts of the paper that are far more statistically sophisticated than the news section, such as the sports page. Sports page reports how well the team did and what the statistics are day after day. It doesn't just report when the home team has suffered a blowout. If it's a win, if it's a loss, if it's a close win, if it's a close loss, if it's a tie, it always gets reported. And the, and the, the data always get reported. Same with the business page. The, uh, the stock market, the commodities prices, there's a running record of that. Uh, same with the weather. Uh, even if it's, uh, nothing, it's not going to rain today, if uh, it's, a, it's a boring day, you still get to read about it. Uh, it seems to me that the uh, indicators of, the, uh, of society, no less than the stock market or the, uh, the sports scoreboards, ought to be regularly reported. What is the homicide rate uh, this, this year? Has it gone up or down? What is the rate of carbon emissions? Uh, what is the rate of people uh, killed in war? Uh, what is the, uh, uh, the, the, the rate of uh, uh, college completion? Uh, uh, it seems to me that newspapers should have a kind of dashboard for these indicators, uh, the same way they do in the sports business and weather pages. Hmm. Yeah, thank you. I think that makes a lot of sense. I guess one thing I'm sort of curious about, just as a follow-up to that, is 
about the idea of complacency and just how human nature is constantly trying to improve itself, I suppose. And a lot of that progress is driven by criticisms and sort of seeing the world, I guess, with that negative lens. Um, so I'm just wondering if there's any sort of way that we could, you know, understand the news and consume the news in a way that's not, you know, the world is crumbling, you know, apocalyptic, but, you know, starting to see it for the statistics, but also making sure not to, I guess, fall into complacency and think, you know, overall, we've improved a lot since, you know, the Spanish flu and thus we shouldn't be too worried about how we're handling coronavirus. Um, what would you say about that? Yeah, you know, I think that the complacency is a worry and, uh, and, and the fact that we um, have, have developed vaccines in the past doesn't mean that they develop themselves. Uh, quite the contrary, they, they, they don't develop themselves and it's only by a concerted effort that we make any kind of uh, improvements. Um, so there is a danger of complacency, but there's also, there, there are complementary dangers though. Uh, one of them is fatalism. If you just think we're, we're doomed, climate change is just going to uh, kill us all, uh, well, the natural response is, well, let's just enjoy ourselves while we can. Let's not have children because uh, in, in uh, 25 years, we're going to go extinct. Uh, that's false and that, that, that is dangerous. Uh, and another um, danger is uh, radicalism. That is, that if you think that the system is just uh, failing beyond reform, then uh, people will be open to uh, radical changes that can be quite dangerous, as we've seen in, in revolutions like uh, the... Uh, uh, the the uh, Chinese Revolution in 1949, the, um, the coming to power of, uh, of um, the uh, Bolsheviks, the, uh, the Nazis. Uh, when you change things, uh, the Iranian Revolution, where uh, uh, if you think that there's no levers of change, let's just burn everything down and start over, uh, chances are things are going to get much, much worse. And, and, uh, and I actually do fear that in the current moment where things like uh, Call, radical calls, for example, to abolish the police would just be an uh, unmitigated disaster. And that's what happens if people think that uh, there's just no room for improvement by legislation, by policy, by uh, democratic channels. Yeah, I think that is a good segue to sort of, you know, another topic that we wanted to delve into. Um, I think the whole abolishment of, you know, the police, for example, I think in large part exemplifies the sort of cancel culture um, that's been affecting society as of recent. Uh, and there, I, th I think there are quite a few dimensions to cancel culture. And one sort of, in, you know, in my mind relates to the present. And it seems to epitomize the sort of conflation of the political with the personal. So, you know, a recent example that's dominated the news over the past few days, the uh, CEO of uh, Goya Foods, the largest Hispanic owned food company with the core Latino market, publicly praised Trump during a visit to the White House claiming that we're all truly blessed at the same time to have a leader like President Trump. And almost immediately this fiery boycott on social media, quote unquote, canceling Goya emerged as critics contended that the CEO's support for Trump implicitly conveyed the sort of callous indifference to the plight of the Latino community or a sort of betrayal to its Latino consumers. And this cancel culture, as you're aware, is especially prevalent amongst college students and Harvard's no uh, exception to that. Um, so I'd, I'd love to explore this dimension of cancel culture a bit, you know, hear your thoughts on it and where people should draw the line between standing up for what they believe and then full out canceling someone for what they believe. Yeah, there's a big difference between uh, disagreement and protest. And, uh, and, and if people want to boycott Goya Foods over the, uh, the statement of its founder, that, they're, uh, that is a, an expression of, uh, of opinion. The problem is can't the canceling. That is 
firing uh, someone who for uh, an opinion that they have expressed, um, drowning them out by uh, pulling fire alarms uh, during their lectures or uh, uh, chanting to drown them out or physically uh, assaulting them, uh, <clears throat> um, withdrawing books from publication that otherwise have passed standards of quality control. So that's the cancelling that is uh, harmful, namely when it comes to the repression of the, or the intimidation of expression of, uh, of beliefs. Uh, it comes from a kind of uh, um, uh, moral certainty, namely not only am I uh, right, but uh, there is, I'm infallible, uh, there can be no questioning of my being right, and therefore I have the right to uh, exert raw power to prevent anyone from disagreeing. That, that's extraordinarily dangerous. Uh, partly because it, uh, it obviously leads to injustice for individuals, for, for uh, uh, young writers and, and uh, scholars and uh, even citizens who uh, can't express an opinion for fear of their lives being ruined. Um, and it's also a bigger problem just for the whole arena of ideas, the, the, the marketplace of, uh, of ideas and opinions. The, uh, we as a species are not infallible or, uh, or omniscient. We, none of us has uh, been told by God what the truth is, uh, how, to, how to fix society's problems, what's the cause of society's problems. Uh, anyone who claims that they know them just by their own uh, conviction is uh, obviously full of baloney. We see that through history. Uh, time after time, someone is um, positive that they have the answer and history shows them to be uh, fools. Um, and it, it, what it means is that at the present moment, uh, we have to be able to entertain a diversity of uh, hypotheses and ideas. No one, uh, some people might be right, some people might be wrong. We don't know who they are until those ideas are out there and can be evaluated. If there's a regime of intimidation so that only one opinion can be expressed, we're guaranteed to lock into the, uh, uh, to error, to, to uh, delusion, to fallacy, just because um, no human uh, has divine inspiration as of the uh, truth. Yeah, uh, I think that's a good point that you raised with regards to, uh, you know, there, there being a difference between boycotting, which is more of a genuine form of expression, as opposed to canceling and drowning out someone's view, you know, due to a disagreement. And I think that kind of ties into, I mean, college campuses, uh, particularly over the past few years, but, you know, perhaps for longer, have been, um, you know, disinviting speakers or drowning them out um, based on how controversial or how sort of contrarian those, those speakers' viewpoints might be. So Milo Yiannopoulos, for example, when he went to UC Berkeley, uh, he was effectively disinvited. They were, um, you know, very aggressive um, protests and just this wave of backlash in response to his, um, uh, to his uh, speaker engagement. And um, a lot of the people who were sort of directly involved with uh, effectively canceling Milo Yiannopoulos and trying to disinvite him, claim that, you know, there is, no, I mean, you know, free speech doesn't give people the opportunity to say, you know, like whatever they uh, want. And that Milo Yiannopoulos is guilty for espousing ideologies that are blatantly homophobic or racist and, um, you know, can actually um, have a very deep-rooted impact on people's personal lives just based on what he's saying. Um, and so I was wondering what your thoughts are on, you know, these the sort of speakers who, yes, you know, they, they are incendiary and they have the sort of fiery rhetoric, but they also um, directly talk about people's cultures, people's backgrounds 
in a sort of degrading, disparaging way that might make people feel uncomfortable. Um, do you think that there is any justification to then canceling that sort of speaker and to try using all your might and all of your power to make sure that the speaker doesn't have a platform to voice those kinds of views that you find not only disagreeable, but actually, you know, harmful? Yeah, I think one has to distinguish between uh, discretion in who you invite and uh, canceling them once they've been invited. Uh, I think it's a mistake to uh, bully audiences away from uh, Milo Yiannopoulos or to uh, drown him out with, uh, with with physical force or or, or even noise, uh, the so-called heckler's veto. Um, I, I personally also think it's a mistake to invite Milo Yiannopoulos just because he's a uh, something of a, of a clown. He is <laughs> reckless. Um, I, I'm more, you know, what, what, if someone if some legitimate organization does invite him, then he should not be drowned out. Um, but uh, the um, and once he is invited, it would be completely uh, appropriate to uh, write uh, um, rebuttals, including um, you know satirical, mocking ones, to say anything you want to, to try to show why a lot of his ideas are uh, are, are, are uh, ridiculous. Um, but so so yes, he should not be fiscally drowned out. On the other hand, I think it would be a, uh, it's, I think it's a mistake to invite him just because he, he's not a scholar, he's not careful, he's not a, uh, he doesn't back things up particularly well. I think there's even greater concern when there are people who who are also incendiary, but have, have done their homework and present uh, arguments. Uh, uh, there are examples like uh, Charles Murray and Heather McDonald who are uh, um, controversial and might even be wrong. In which case, explain why they're wrong. Uh, and but but who have been prevented from uh, speaking often by by chanting mobs, uh, or scholars who have been um, uh, fired, especially um, early career scholars. Noah Carl, a, a British um, uh, scholar, was uh, offered a postdoc and then it was withdrawn in response to a, a totally ignorant and uh, mendacious petition signed by several hundred uh, students and, and professors. His career um, you know, might be ruined. Um, so it's often a lot of the people that we uh, have not heard of who are the, uh, the most poignant victims uh, because their career has been ended by this uh, intimidation uh, as opposed to the more newsworthy figures like uh, Yiannopoulos. Uh, ironically, Yiannopoulos was eventually canceled by the right because of uh, statements that he made that uh, were sim too sympathetic to uh, uh, pedophilia. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, and I think sort of like, uh, you know, as we mentioned prior to kicking off the podcast, I'm from Princeton, New Jersey. And so, uh, one thing that's been weighing heavily on my mind is this sort of other dimension to cancel culture that relates to the past and, uh, you know, specifically to this movement of tearing down statues and renaming institutions. Um, and so, you know, there are lots of elements to that, right? So there are, you know, these, um, like pretty much, I, I think all states now have effectively, um, torn down, at least in some capacity, Confederate statues that many say glorify the racist past of the country. But even in, you know, Princeton, New Jersey, renaming the Woodrow Wilson School um, due to sort of how ostensibly racist he was as a, um, you know, as a president. And um, there even are, you know, people across the country who've been tearing down statues of missionaries or even George Washington because of the sort of dark elements of their history for in, for instance if they've um either had slaves or if they've uh you know been you know involved with uh disparaging and 
denigrating a, a sort of particular uh, group um, of the water population. And so with Woodrow Wilson, for example, there were lots of people who claimed him, rightfully so perhaps, as a pioneer of international cooperation, as the father of the League of Nations and what, you know, became sort of the United Nations. But then a lot of people also had disagreements with the fact that he was a, a very racist president who uh, had shown a, you know, popular KKK movie in the White House, has gone on the record with saying um, quite a few racist remarks. And so I was wondering what your thoughts are on, you know, evaluating these people um, and maybe taking them out of their sort of, of their sort of, you know, of their sort of like historical context and not giving them any power to, you know, voice their thoughts, given that they're, you know, in the past. Um, what, like, is that a movement that has credibility to you? And do you think that it's potentially dangerous to be canceling historical figures? Yeah, I think there, there are several issues. One of them is uh, one has to make um, distinctions between uh, people who were um, uh, who are being commemorated for um, reprehensible uh, acts, such as uh, uh, ringleaders of the Confederacy who tried to destroy the country and prop up slavery. Uh, so they really don't don't have any um, compensating uh, contribution that we want to honor at the same time as we recognize their uh, their flaws. It's kind of flaws all the way down. Um, e even there, I don't think that crowds should uh, pull down statues. I think that, uh, that uh, I think policy by by vandalism is a uh, a terrible movement because <clears throat> when when you don't have people deliberating, then it uh, spreads into tearing down. Um, you know, statues of, of, of Frederick Douglass and of uh, people that uh, where, the, where the mob really has not given any thought to uh, who should be there and, and, and who should not. It should be done by a uh, by the rule of law and democratic deliberation. Even then, the case of Woodrow Wilson is a, it's a, a marginal case because of what you said is, is right. He, uh, he he was a president of the United States. He was a president of uh, Princeton. He was a uh, a pioneer of something that is vitally important, namely international institutions. At the same time, as it was not just that he had racist attitudes, but he did um, undertake um, a uh, horrific policy of resegregating the, uh, the federal government and driving African Americans out of positions, which was, uh, of course, reprehensible. Uh, so that you know, Wilson's a marginal case. I, I tend to think that it would have been better to use it as a <clears throat> the the uh, increased attention to his racist actions as a teachable moment, <clears throat> and to have, perhaps have in the entrance to the Woodrow Wilson School a full uh, explanation of his uh, horrible acts, uh, and then in the case of course Washington and Jefferson, who uh, were in some ways did bad things in their lives. Uh, Jefferson kept slaves well past the point at which. It was known that this was a uh, an evil thing to do, and some of his contemporaries had uh, freed their slaves. He had not, so he sure does deserve retrospective criticism, even by the standards of the day. Uh, nonetheless, uh, I think we shouldn't um, reinforce a narrative of history uh, that um, there there used to be bad bad people. Uh, the reason that their bad things happened is that there were bad people. We are good people, and therefore we can um, <clears throat> uh, censure uh, the bad people because uh, uh, we're, so, we're so much more angelic. It's, it's a, a dangerous uh, understanding of history because it, um, uh, it, it negates the way that the unwritten uh, norms of uh, any given era can lock uh, good people into bad things. 
doing bad things, even if they themselves were not uh, uh, unusually evil, even if they were not uh, uh, wicked and nefarious. Uh, the times can lock themselves into customs and laws and institutions that we retrospectively see were, were uh, horrendous. If we think that it's all just a question of being a good, good person or a bad person, and we're, we're, we're good people because we know that racism was bad, uh, is bad, then we're apt to overlook the, uh, the evils of our own norms and institutions uh, that will be the um, raw material for progress uh, for the next generation. Uh, all of us are, will no doubt be judged by our descendants as guilty of uh, many sins. We don't know what they'll be, but it could be um, uh, eating, it could be uh, possessing nuclear weapons, it could be uh, using imprisonment as a, a main form of punishment, it could be drug laws. Um, the idea that, that uh, our grandchildren will therefore uh, erase uh, all of us because we were complicit in the system uh, would be, uh, is not going to be uh, the, the way that we're going to reform the system. It's the way we're going to reform the evils is to take a, a look at what we uh, are all too com uh, complacent about and uh, to try to uh, change it without, without uh, accepting the uh, judgment that we're, we're evil people. We've got, we've got um, um, bad norms, bad institutions that ought to be uh, changed. Likewise, retrospectively, that was the situation fa facing them. Uh, it wasn't that the, the, the uh, way to understand history is not to shame people who are part of it, but to understand what was wrong with the, uh, the, the system that they unconsciously lived with. Yeah, definitely. I think um, sort of on the same lines, but sort of switching gears a little bit. I, I think I, by this point, sort of through Twitter and just like general other interviews that you've done, um, I think I sort of understand your criticisms of cancel culture, especially with regards to like the Linguistic Society of America letter and sort of that, what's going on with that as well. Um, but I was also just curious um, what you thought more about the content of the criticisms um, that you'd sort of faced about um, your work, especially on, um, you know, progressivism, enlightenment now, such and such, sort of about like so-called downplaying inequality and racial violence and sort of how you reacted to the content of the criticism um, in addition to obviously the cancel culture aspect of it. Uh, yeah, it's, uh, uh, I think the criticisms were, were uh, preposterous. They were really trying to, uh, so one, uh, one journalist, Matt Tybee, compared it to the uh, excited Christians who see images of Jesus in uh, uh, tree stumps and wall mold. Uh, that is, if you uh, are determined to find something that, uh, that you can uh, interpret as a dog whistle for racism, you all, always can, but that the, uh, I think the criticisms were, were uh, out to lunch. Um, in, in the case of, uh, say, police shootings of um, unarmed victims, um, it's an open question that can only be answered by, by data. No one knows the answer. Is the problem that uh, American police are uh, biased against blacks when they shoot uh, victims or, 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 or choke them? Or is the problem that American police are just too brutal and violent across the board, too trigger happy? Uh, depending on the answer to that question, the way to reduce police violence is going to be very different. Uh, is it to hire more minority officers, to give them implicit bias training? We have reason to believe that those are totally useless uh, in terms of reducing uh, police violence. Uh, or is it to train them in de-escalation, demilitarization? Uh, the, 
no one is born with the answer. No one has been uh, you know, vouchsafed with uh, correctness from, from uh, God or from an oracle. The only way we can understand it in uh, the service of, of uh, improving it is if we look at the data. And so it is not, the truth can't be racist. The uh, truth can't be evil. We've really got to understand what's going on in order that we can uh, uh, fix the flaws. So no, I think that, that, that it was, uh, I think the, the accusations were uh, absolutely delusional. Yeah, so sort of on that, um, I'm curious, like from more like rationality and like psychology standpoint as well, and human nature, um, how do you think sort of quarantine, you know, social distancing, in making people perhaps more prone to making these kinds of accusations or you know finding problems, you know, in people's past or et cetera, et cetera. Um, it sort of reminds me of your Joe Rogan interview where you discussed the uh, New York Times article about how social media makes us stupid. Um, and obviously since March, you know, that's all we've sort of been doing. And I was wondering what you thought about with that as well. Uh, it, it could be. And um, I, I don't know how much the quarantine has added to this uh, culture of, uh, of uh, intolerance and, and uh, moral certainty. Um, I think social media has uh, have played a role because uh, um, engagement is driven by uh, emotional outrage. We just know that those are the, the, the tweets and the posts that get the most likes and, and, uh, and uh, uh, shares. Uh, so there, there may be uh, a, uh, a mechanism in social media that amplifies some of the worst of uh, um, our irrational impulses. Um, probably too soon to say whether quarantine has made, uh, made it worse, but it, it, it might have. I think the more general point is that um, you know, in thinking about rationality, we are obviously capable as a species of doing some pretty rational things. We, we, we uh, discovered the genetic code, we uh, uh, about, uh, stamped out smallpox, we got to the moon. Uh, you, you can't do that unless you, you, you're, you're pretty smart as a species. On the other hand, uh, no one of us is particularly rational. That's one of the great findings of cognitive psychology of the 20th century. We're all vulnerable to, to various blind spots and illusions and, and errors. Uh, the the um, key to making us collectively rational is some certain rules of the game that uh, everyone plays by that work to marginalize our, uh, our, our illusions, our fallacies, our blind spots, and to allow the um, more correct explanations to bubble to the surface. And uh, some media are um, uh, much better than others. Uh, science with its uh, system of peer review, uh, democracy with its checks and balances, journalism with its uh, fact checking, uh, Wikipedia with its, uh, which, you know, for, for, for all its flaws and, and errors, it is uh, astonishingly accurate given that no one person is in, in charge, but there's no very little pseudoscience, conspiracy, uh, theorizing fake news on Wikipedia. Social media, on the other hand, clearly don't have the rules of the game right in terms of allowing uh, rationality to, to prevail. There's something about the, uh, the, the rules of the game, the algorithms of social media that, uh, that seem to be uh, doing the opposite. And it's, it's a big challenge, I, I think, for, for all of us to figure out how to get our communications media to, to uh, allow us to converge on truth and rationality as opposed to fake news and conspiracy theories and, uh, um, and, and uh, hate propaganda. Yeah, I think now that we're discussing social media, so the one thing that pops to mind, uh, I'm sure you're obviously very aware of the controversy that's been engulfing 
Facebook and Twitter and those sort of social media platforms um, related to whether or not they have an obligation to monitor speech and to make sure that the speech that's on those platforms um, isn't associated with you know fake news or with conspiracy theory um, and uh, also doesn't pose any sort of harm to the audiences uh, that those platforms um, sort of garner. So um, I think Facebook as of recent uh, received quite a bit of backlash um, for, for, you know, sort of committing to the idea that uh, they're just a platform for enabling speech to occur freely and to flow freely, and that they don't want to enter the business as much as other platforms, say, you know, Twitter, of actually going through posts and, you know, um, taking them off, or at least adding some sort of disclaimer that sort of hides them a little bit. Um, if those posts are considered um, to be espousing violence or if they're considered to be fake, quote unquote. Um, and so I was wondering what your thoughts are on that whole sort of movement as to whether or not social media platforms should have an obligation to monitor free speech. And if so, um, don't you think it would be a bit problematic or a bit disconcerting for a social media platform to then be the arbitrator of sorts and to determine, okay, what constitutes speech that's genuine or speech that's not um, fake or, you know, conspiracy theory oriented and what constitutes speech that's actually acceptable on our platform? Yeah, it, it, it's an excellent set of questions and there's several issues. One of them, of course, is that as, since they're private companies, um, they're not bound by the First Amendment, so they um, don't uh, have to permit every, anything to be said, just as the New York Times doesn't have to permit uh, anything to be said on, on its uh, platform. Um, on the other hand, with uh, hundreds of millions of users, um, there is the, the, the problem of how you um, monitor, monitor it all. And there's the additional problem of um, how you ensure that it doesn't, that, that since, since uh, uh, anyone can call anything hate speech, and there's some, been some preposterous accusations, like uh, uh, where uh, any opinion that someone doesn't like, they can just say that that's hate speech. Uh, and that has happened. Uh, Ayan Percy Ali, the, uh, the, the heroine of uh, um, liberalization of, uh, of Islam herself, the, the target of uh, persecution and uh, threats, uh, when she speaks about some of the uh, homophobic and uh, misogynistic aspects of uh, traditional Islam, then uh, you get the Southern Poverty Law Center uh, accusing her of hate speech. So I mean, this is an example of how uh, an overly broad, a, a, just the, the, uh, the idea, well, if it's hate speech, we can um, stamp it out, is uh, very problematic without a very uh, narrow definition of what counts as, as uh, hate speech. Um, so the, the danger uh, in uh, having too much uh, uh, censorship or content moderation of a very wide platform like uh, Facebook or Twitter is that you might just empower the, uh, the, the most uh, repressive of the most wokest uh, intersectional uh, identity uh, politicians and social justice warriors to uh, stamp out uh, any idea that they're uh, uncomfortable with. Uh, that would be the, the, the harm in the other direction. Uh, how you can have something that will not just allow um, such nonsense to, as, as the, the, the fake news, the conspiracy theories to proliferate, without having a regime of uh, intellectual uh, oppression that only a, a narrow range of uh, dogma can be uh, permitted, everything else uh, stamped out as, quote, hate crimes, is it, really a, a hard problem. 
Um, I, I do think that it's reasonable to ask social media companies to, uh, to, to address the problem, if not by, uh, certainly they can, they can and they have uh, banned outright incitements to violence, uh, which isn't even protected by the, the, uh, the First Amendment for, for uh, government uh, outlets, let alone private ones. Um, and so they certainly uh, can be called on to, to, to do that. Uh, for, for true um, uh, hate communication, where a minority group is uh, demonized or dehumanized, I think it's uh, completely reasonable to, uh, to kick, kick that off. But recognizing some wide latitude of acceptable statements uh, of opinion. An unsolved problem, maybe the, uh, occasionally Mark Zuckerberg has said, well, we can sick uh, artificial intelligence on the problem. Um, uh, pretty unlikely given the current state of artificial intelligence. Maybe the uh, a solution would be to hire a few tens of thousands of underemployed uh, college graduates uh, and have them uh, uh, monitor content, but with very clearly delineated guidelines that differentiate uh, uh, unquestionably harmful and false communications from mere difference of opinion. But it's, uh, I think perhaps the, since, since this is new, we only had social media for, for a little more than a decade. Um, the, there's no simple solution, then perhaps even experiments in some more circumscribed uh, toy worlds uh, to see what happens to the direction, the evolution of a discourse in um, more controlled social media might tell us what the, the best policies will turn out to be. Yeah, and I think, you know, this is sort of pertinent to what you just discussed and also harkens back a little bit to what we discussed earlier, but with regards to the role of the mob, so like you mentioned, for example, when we were discussing tearing down statues, that um, you would find it perhaps a bit more comfortable for there to be deliberate procedure, maybe in you know, the policy realm, uh, when it comes to tearing down those statues, instead of giving that responsibility or giving that sort of, you know, um, opportunity to you know the mob in general to tear down statues as they see fit and even similarly with social media um, when it comes to regulating these kinds of speech uh, maybe artificial intelligence doesn't do the trick maybe we have to rely more on as you mentioned you know just tens of thousands of college students or some sort of you know more genuine reflection of uh, sort of uh, you know like the mentality of the masses when it comes to that sort of regulation but what my question is, is, um, for example, if you went to the streets of Minneapolis a few weeks ago um, during you know, the heat of the George Floyd protests and you told them to wait for policy to do the trick, I think you would get uh, a lot of angry perspectives about how um, if we want to say, you know, reform the police institution, that uh, just waiting for policy would never do anything because they haven't acted in so long. And so it's up to them. It's up to the mob, so to speak to actually enact change. And that's uh, a perspective that I've heard echoed a lot from you know, fellow Harvard classmates, where um, instead of waiting for policy to actually make those kinds of necessary reforms, um, it should be in the hands of you know, the people and that we should take to the streets and voice our frustrations, but not merely our frustrations, also our you know, demands and actually make them and actually actualize them. So I wanted to hear your thoughts on how um, we sort of draw the line between, you know, the mob galvanizing for good and actually trying to catalyze meaningful change, but then also being cognizant of the fact that, you know, you know, mob mentality has its shortcomings uh, and that, you know, the mob can't be necessarily entrusted with that grave of a responsibility. Yeah, there's a, there's a difference between um, public protest, even mass protest and mob action. 
So if people take to the streets to, to uh, agitate for some change, that's obviously uh, a good thing. Um, if people are destroying um, uh, public property, or for that matter, private property, that's uh, something quite different. Uh, the, the idea that we should empower the mob for, <coughs> mobs for uh, actually implementing change, uh, I think is extraordinarily dangerous. Uh, <coughs> that's how lynching occurred. You'd get a, an entire um, uh, town roused up about the uh, terrible injustice that some uh, white woman was, uh, was raped by a black man and they're impatient with uh, mere uh, um, trials with witnesses and prosecution and they take matters into the own, their own hands and uh, uh, torture and, uh, and um, assassinate the, uh, the nearest black man. Uh, or in the case of uh, pogroms in Eastern Europe, where the Jews poisoned the wells, therefore we should uh, massacre every Jew that we can uh, get our hands on. Um, so uh, the, the answer is no. I don't think that mobs should be uh, should have it, have any power. Though of course they should have the right to protest, and of course they uh, government must be uh, responsible to the people and, and only the people uh, through. That's what democracy is. Um, majority, the difference between uh, the voice of the people determining policy, including agitating for change, and mobs being empowered to affect change um, uh, by themselves. Yeah, and I think uh, you mentioned just now this sort of fundamental apprehension I've been having uh, when it comes to uh, people taking the streets in the aftermath of George Floyd's horrific murder. Um, and, uh, you know, that uh, obviously there were lots of people who took to the streets to chant and to, you know, uh, you know, exhibit the sort of conventional forms of public protest that you might find more agreeable. But then there also were quite a few members of the so-called mob who in their anger and their frustration uh, tore down um, public property and uh, vandalized local businesses, even, you know, destroying them and destroying people's livelihoods. But their argument uh, was that they've, uh, you know, these sorts of movements, I mean, we've had movements in, you know, the wake of uh, Michael Brown's murder, or, you know, Tamir Rice's murder, and um, they haven't really amounted to nearly as much reform, nearly as much change as these people deem necessary. And so they think that the only way to actually send their message across, uh, you know, prominently and sort of effectively is to kind of raise the ante a little bit and to say, you know, now we're going to, you know, um, like it's managed to get them into the spotlight by also um, re resorting to that sort of violence, that sort of vandalism. And so um, do you think that it is possible for there to be these sort of movements that actually can make change by um, these more conventional, peaceful forms of public protest? And if so, why have those movements fallen flat over the past several years when it comes to, for instance, advocating for police reform? Why is it that we've been seeing these Black Lives Matter police reform movements um, kind of, you know, pop up here and there for the past decade almost, but then never actually be able, but they haven't really been able to amount to as much change as, you know, as we just had in the aftermath of George Floyd's murder, where there were more violent protests perhaps, but they actually managed to make a difference. Yeah, I don't think, <clears throat> the, the fact that a, a group of people say that um, you haven't done what we want, therefore we get to uh, burn stuff, is not the way to affect uh, social change, because uh, which 
Uh, does it mean that any group that's prepared to use violence can demand that that uh, what what they want get uh, get implemented? Including, I mean, that could include white supremacists. That could, could include uh, anti-Semites. The ability to destroy things should not in a democracy uh, anywhere should not be the way that uh, that, that change is is uh, affected. There's no guarantee that it will lead to positive change as opposed to uh, violence, destruction. Uh, and indeed harm to uh, to, to, to uh, minorities. Uh, the uh, reform, the reason that these have to be deliberated uh, rather than uh, coerced by the threat of violence is that the measures can do a, a lot more harm than good. Um, I think there's, we, are, we have seen in the wake of the, um, the, the, uh, the rioting in response to the George Floyd uh, murder, um, the, uh, a uh, huge increase in, in violent crime, in drive-by shootings, in gang violence, in uh, children being killed. We saw in the wake of the Ferguson protests in 2014, and when I, I track um, uh, homicide statistics pretty closely, because that's what I've been doing since I wrote The Better Angels of Our Nature. Uh, uh, homicide had been in decline in the United States for, for uh, many years, and in 2014, I thought it's gonna go back up uh, because the police are going to be uh, reluctant to uh, make their presence felt, and, and I was right. The, uh, the crime rate did a U-turn. Uh, it helped elect Donald Trump. It, uh, he, uh, in his American carnage theme, he said, look, the uh, crime is increasing. Uh, he was right that it was increasing. He was wrong that it, uh, that it uh, had, had increased very much. It was a small uptick. But people felt it, and, and they got scared, and that's what happened with Richard Nixon, especially in the wake of uh, rioting and looting and burning in uh, 1968. He, even though everyone thought that the issue of the election was the war in Vietnam, he switched it to law and order and, uh, and he won. And, and the results were, uh, were awful. Uh, the, um, so the, 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 the multiple problems in uh, mob rule are um, a uh, backlash and in, in uh, the ideas people, they don't, they don't want their neighborhoods burned down. Uh, they, they don't want to worry, uh, they don't want to have no one to call if, um, if they, they, they feel threatened. And so they're going to vote for more conservative politicians. Uh, I, I think it's one of the few ways in which the Democratic Party could screw up their chances for the election this year. They had a campaign of abolish the police. We'd have another four years of Donald Trump. Fortunately, Joe Biden is, uh, is too smart for that. But also, we, uh, there have to, mobs aren't very good at um, deciding on, on policy. We want a, uh, enough of a, uh, a uh, responsible police presence to deter crime, but we don't want the police themselves to be a threat. That's not something that a, a mob with Molotov cocktails is very good at, uh, at figuring out. Uh, and who knows whether next time the mob with Molotov cocktails might be the, the, uh, the, the neo-Nazis. It's just not the way to uh, to, to shape a society is to allow the most uh, violent, the most destructive uh, factions to, to uh, demand that they get uh, what, what they want. To say nothing of the effects on the neighborhoods themselves, uh, the aftermath of the uh, 1960s riots were a disaster for uh, minority and African-American neighborhoods. Uh, would you open up a, a, a grocery store in a neighborhood where you think that um, uh, it's likely to be burned down? Um, would you uh, move in um, to, to a place where you would uh, fear being uh, raped or, or uh, mugged? Uh, the crime uh, rates actually went through the roof uh, in the um, 60s and 70s and 80s. 
that wasn't good for everyone, especially not good for minority communities who tend to be disproportionately the victims of uh, violent crime, to say nothing of um, blighted and devastated neighborhoods. So uh, protests, absolutely, that's what democracy consists of. Uh, agitation, yes. Uh, burning stuff down, no. Yeah, thank you so much. Um, I guess in the last few moments we have together, uh, we also wanted to ask a little bit about college students in wake of coronavirus. Um, we've spoken a lot today about rationality as well. And I think, you know, when times are certain, it's a lot easier to make smart decisions. Um, so we're wondering sort of, you know, what sort of psychological effects do you think social distancing and uncertainty have on people our age? Um, and how can we, one, tackle those problems Certainties rationally, and two, make sense of the world and interpret news in a way that's rational, as we discussed today. Yeah, great, 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 great questions. Uh, so my, my my biggest message is always to pay more attention to uh, data than um, incidents. Uh, I recommend people go to the site Our World in Data, with a beautiful uh, site which compiles uh, and, and presents in accessible form data on just about anything you might be curious about. It's a much better way to understand the world than, than the daily news. In terms of what, what to do, um, I, I think it would be, uh, especially for people with uh, an education, with talent, with uh, the desire to change the world, uh, at the present moment to, to try to see what is, uh, where are the most effective levers of change. Uh, there, there's nothing good about the, uh, the, the pandemic. People are dying, people are losing their livelihoods. It's just a, uh, uh, it's one of those calamities that, uh, that, that, that human beings like living organisms periodically face. But given that it's happened, what will it, how will it allow us to, uh, to, to change, uh, change the world? Uh, one would be that there may be a lot of inefficiencies that are just locked into our uh, habit that the uh, coronavirus can shake us uh, out of, such as getting on planes and flying to meetings that could probably be held on, on Zoom. You could get 95% of the benefit with a fraction of the uh, carbon footprint and expense. Um, it could be an opportunity to rethink uh, energy grids. Um, transportation networks, as long as people aren't driving uh, in the first place, how do we uh, uh, maybe keep um, rethink our, our transportation networks? Uh, our, um, uh, the, the economy is being turned uh, upside down. Maybe it's a way to rethink what the uh, best role for government is in uh, uh, evening out many of the um, inefficiencies and, uh, uh, and, and harms of, uh, of um, uh, of capitalism, um, you know, what, what is the balance between the market and the government? Um, many opportunities for using this uh, uncertainty, this uh, unsettling, this change in order to, to push things in a better direction. Great, yeah. Thank you so much for, for coming on. We really enjoyed it. Thank you very um, much. Yeah, this was an amazing conversation. Uh, really, you know, appreciate you taking the time to uh, chat with us. I, I'm, uh, I'm glad that you're doing this, and I'm grateful for, uh, for your having me on. Thanks so much, and, and good luck to you. I know this is an uh, extraordinarily difficult time to be a uh, university student, uh, a college graduate, uh, and, and, and I urge you to see, see the present crisis as a set of opportunities, ways of uh, uh, improving our institutions and our, uh, and our norms. Absolutely. Thank you again, Professor Tinker. Appreciate Thanks it. Thank you. Thank you.